When you think of software development, what comes to mind? Is it code, team of developers, or should it go beyond? Here on the Get In The Mode podcast, we share with our guests some of tech's biggest goals. Hi, I'm David Jay, the host and founder of ModeStack, who is on a mission to empower business leaders and decision makers with technology that is outcome-driven. Innovation mode, execution mode, strategy mode. There are many phases and facets to the world of software and technology. Get in the mode. Our guest today is Connor O'Brien. He is Senior Director of Business Operations at Anaplan. Well, Connor's many things, apart from all the many things he does, uh, he is also an avid open water diver, dog whisperer, and an Ironman. <laughs> He's literally living the Colorado dream. Uh, hey, Connor, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so, Connor, why don't we start um, with Anaplan? Uh, what do you do for them as the Senior Director of Business Operations? Sure. So, uh, Anaplan is a kind of open-ended modeling, budgeting, planning uh, platform. Uh, the way I describe it to my, my parents, my grandparents, is we're kind of like Excel on steroids in the cloud. So uh, anything you want to model out, uh, analyze, uh, gain insights from, and operationalize, uh, you can do that with Anaplan, but at massive scale and with all the kind of enterprise um, kind of components around security, auditability, um, access and usability that you'd expect. So what we do with my team is we fundamentally use Anaplan as much as humanly possible to run the operations of our company. So whether it's uh, you know, running FPNA, running sales ops, marketing operations, HR operations, and all the complex processes that interconnect those different groups, uh, my team plays a hand in either uh, directly running or supporting uh, in some way, shape, or form. That's great. Um, so I loved how you related that. You know, if I were to explain this to my grandparents, it's excellent steroids. <laughs> Our show is all about that. So we, we try to, we're, we're focused on sharing all this knowledge to business, business leaders, decision makers who may be technical as well as non-technical. Um, so with, obviously it's a, it's, it's a tech platform in the enterprise space. Um, you know, are there any cool trends that Anaplan is following? AI, you know, anything in that space uh, can you, that you can talk about? Yeah, uh, so we're following a lot of different things, which is kind of what I love about my job. Um, I kind of view our team uh, in a lot of ways as just kind of the center of innovation within Anaplan. So we are in constant conversations with many different companies uh, through partnerships uh, from, you know, like source systems like uh, an ERP, uh, to uh, we actually kind of helped uh, land an acquisition of uh, what we call our intelligent planning module. Um, the company is called Mintigo that we uh, we brought into the Anaplan family not too long ago. And that's actually our AI planning tool that we are now in the process of integrating more seamlessly into our platform. 
And as part of that evaluation, uh, my team got to sit down with the uh, the folks over at Mintigo, kind of open up the covers, dive into their back end of how their um, their ML platform worked and how we could leverage it for a variety of different um, you know, planning, uh, forecasting, uh, insights, and predictive um, analysis type work to ensure that uh, you know we were getting something that was going to be valuable, but also kind of have that classic one plus one equals three uh, impact that you're looking for when you're trying to you know acquire a company or bring in a new technology. So, as a, as a leader in the business operations space, um, you know how do you see, um, you know what do you see the role of AI? Um, you know, we're talking about RPA, robotic process automation, um, you know, a lot of different things. You know, obviously you've been in the operation space. You know, what are some tasks that can be automated with the AI that we have? What are some challenges that we're having? You know, perhaps some myths that you can debunk in that space? Yeah, so I uh, I always like to couch that you know my exposure with uh, AI ML is highly tactical and highly operational. There's obviously some incredible use cases out there, uh, you know, that like Google is obviously pioneering, um, you know, whether it's helping uh, create driverless cars to helping you know solve the human genome, all that. That's amazing stuff that is you know 50 levels above my pay grade that uh, i could not even at my best day even hope of ever sniffing at so i try and focus on what can i use you know kind of broad aspirational technology like uh artificial intelligence and ml to uh you know fix everyday pro uh, problems that a lot of companies uh, focus on and my ops background really kind of shines through here and i see a lot of applicability and capability of taking the kind of everyday mundane processes that we as humans, frankly, are awful at doing, which is effectively collaborating, communicating effectively, and doing so in a timely fashion in order to just get your job done, right? And anybody who's ever worked in right, a moderately sized organization has kind of struggled with the, well, I'd love to be able to do X, but I can't because, you know, Johnny down the way hasn't finished Y, or Sarah up on the fifth floor hasn't finished, you know, Z. And so using uh, ML and AI, we've actually found that you can kind of identify particular patterns of people uh, completing certain subtasks. And by kind of getting that pattern, pattern recognition and pattern matching, you're able to then kind of say, hey, you know, uh, subtask A is actually behind schedule. And if that's behind schedule, then these other kind of sub subtasks or these sequential follow on tasks are at risk of missing a mark or being constrained where you're having people working until midnight you know, five days a week or something. Um, so we actually use um, that kind of, we, sorry, we're trying to use that technology to help kind of just streamline and optimize people's workflows using Anaplan um, at, you know, at my own current job. Um, and that's kind of where we're starting to see some interesting kind of possibility there where it's, it's not just how can we get a better number or a better output from the machines and the robots, as I kind of jokingly say, but actually how can we um, use it to kind of push and nudge people to take actions when a particular data point is brought up and surfaced that says, hey, there's a potential for concern here or potential for error or failure. Let's try and take action on that and use that information as well as alerting capabilities to get a broad, you know, a broad cross section of people working on a project to kind of work in concert together. So um, th that's great. So on the ops side, you know, what are some key metrics 
uh, and KPIs uh, as a ops leader that you're interested in um, tracking? So I'm in the SaaS space, and you know, even though Anaplan went public about a year and a half ago, we are still very much in that hyper growth, uh, you know, grow top line revenue, capture market share at all costs kind of uh, you know strategy. And so as a result, you know, for an enterprise B2B company, it really boils down to you know kind of two or three main things: uh, hiring quota carrying sales reps to actually have sales capacity into the field. And then ensuring that you're getting an appropriate amount of productivity out of those reps. You're not just kind of throwing good money after bad. So anything and everything that's related to identifying, onboarding, and retaining talent, as well as then identifying, uh, going at, uh, marking, and then going after a particular market segment or your particular TAM, and then supporting that in any way possible, that's what I spend 80 to 90% of my day job kind of thinking about trying to make more efficient. Um, from a back office perspective, as well as a strategic, how could we be thinking about our potential market opportunity? Where should we be focusing? Where are the hot spots? Where are the cold spots? Is that shifting, you know, day over day, month over month, quarter over quarter, year over year? You know, apart from Anaplan as an ops leader, you know, what are some key metrics that you would recommend for business leaders and decision makers uh, that they should be tracking in an organization your size? Uh, that's funny. I was talking about this with my team about two weeks ago. Uh, the short answer is I don't really believe in there just being one um, metric that you, you track. I mean, there's obviously the ones that you have to care about revenue, margins, you know, your T&E spend, your costs, some of those basic ones, especially as a public company, you have uh, SEC regulations dictating. Uh, but every quarter, and every, sometimes even every month, you have a different problem facing your company. Um, and it's actually more about having the agility to kind of uh, reorient and grab new information, grab new insights, and then take corrective action or double down and, you know, the, the better situation. Uh, because macro, things change, right? Brexit finally happened. Uh, last month, right after five, six years of kind of being dangled in front of us. So just being able to plan for that and then actually you know, handle it once it happens. Uh, your competitors can launch new products. You can have new competitors come into your market. Your market can just completely bottom out like we've seen happen with like publishing, right? Some of these other more legacy, um, you know, old school uh, industries out there. So I don't firmly believe in there just being one to two to three things that if you just manage this, your business too, you'll be successful. I firmly believe that there's something that's going to change and it's driven by your own your own particular strategy as well as the macro factors outside that are kind of pushing you and nudging you a particular way. Um, and you have to be, be able to handle that. And that's what I think really kind of differentiates the companies that succeed from the ones that don't. Because um, if, you, if you try and manage to just ARR, for instance, you're going to run into problems because that's a kind of a lagging indicator of actual success and growth. And if you're just trying to maximize that, you're going to maybe misunderstand that you're not getting the right kinds of expansion or the right kind or you're getting too much churn in particular segments, right? If you focus too much on sales productivity at the individual territory level, you're going to have maybe some good results at that lower level, but maybe on a more macro perspective, you're going to run into issues where you're, you find out you're actually going after the wrong territories of the wrong cam in the first place. So it really is, you have to have a kind of, uh, you know, polyglot perspective on, what really matters right now, where are we ultimately trying to go, and how can we align that to our strategy, and then being fully ready to throw all of it out and shift on a dime because, you know, 
the, the old Mike Tyson saying of everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, right? <laughs> so that's where I kind of uh, approach it from. I love it. Um, we, we're talking about business agility here, um, you know, and constantly inspecting and adapting, right? Which is the key tenets of agile. Um, on that note, you know, just kind of piggybacking this question off of what you just said, where does one start? I mean, a company, a, you know, let, let's say you're advising a business leader or a decision maker, you know, okay, this is all great. Where do we start? What's your advice to that question? So where do we start from like a, a, a metrics and yeah, kind of like data perspective? That's right. Um, you know, if I think back to how we've grown Anaplan and then how I'm working to grow uh, kind of one of my side hustles here uh, in the, the cryptocurrency space is I think first and foremost, you have to focus on top line, right? If you can't articulate growth and you can't show a, um, a product market fit, then nothing else matters, right? And I think we've effectively, at least in the tech space, have established that um, we will throw all kinds of dollars at people, at companies who can show growth even if it's done at a at a at an effective loss. Now, as you know, the Casper IPO, uh, many of the other tech IPOs that have come out the past year or so, um, if you don't show a, a pathway to some kind of cash flow prop profitability or at least a positive contribution margin within three uh, a three year time frame, you're gonna you're gonna run to trouble. But the early onset days, when you're first growing, it's just getting users and it's getting people to pay you money. Uh, because when you do that, that's what that's effectively unlocking all the keys to the kingdom. You you start getting feedback on what works and what doesn't. What do people actually get value out of? So that then helps inform your pricing strategy, right? Should we be charging more for X and less for Y? Uh, does it need to be flipped entirely? Should we be moving more to a freemium to get people hooked? And so that then they have no choice but to pony up to become more secure, uh, or secure, aka the flat bottle, uh, as I like to to kind of call it, right? Um, there's a million things that you just don't know what you don't know about until you actually get people and you have people paying you for the, the, the ability to use your service. So if you focus on those two things, user acquisition and then getting your first revenue, the rest of it, I think, then becomes apparent of what you need to focus on, right? Maybe you have the wrong TAM, maybe you have the wrong buyer persona, maybe you have the wrong feature function layout, and maybe you have the wrong price. You won't know that stuff until you get into your user's hands and you start kind of talking to them. Great. Um, so, like we said in the intro, you're a man of many faces. The other, you know, we you do advise a, a group called Blockchain, and you mentioned that briefly working with crypto. Um, so, Blockchain, from what we understand, is a digital asset investing platform for uh, professional wealth managers. Um, let's let's talk more about that. Um, you know, why don't you tell us? Why, what's the use case for blockchain? You know, traditionally we see of wealth managers using all these, you know, trading software and whatnot. Um, what's, you know, what's the use case with uh, blockchain and crypto in this space? Yeah, um, so what blockchain is fundamentally trying to do is bring uh, cryptocurrency and digital asset investing to uh, more people. Right, that's just the, the simplest way to put it without sounding uh, completely over the top and talking about democratization of crypto and, and, and you know, capital and investing. 
that's all sounds great, but the fact of the matter is uh, there are some very fundamental um, and uh, real hurdles towards people being more engaged with investing in cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's a million things we can talk about in terms of why they would, why they wouldn't. Um, it's highly volatile. It's also uh, non-correlated to the market. It, we can we can spend you know, another hour session on that alone. But what we're trying to fundamentally solve for is that if you have a, a financial tools at their disposal to help you take your money, invest it properly, save for retirement, save for your children's uh, you know education, um, or just you know maybe a nest egg for purchasing a house, or you want to go on an awesome trip to Africa, whatever it is. There's a thousand ways to do that with the kind of current current traditional financial asset classes out there, aka equities, stocks, bonds, you name it. When it comes to cryptocurrency, there's no portfolio management capability out there. There's no way of looking at your digital assets in the broader context of your overall financial plan, right? You've got 10 bitcoins, roughly valued at about $90,000 these days. What does that look like and what proportion of your uh, asset allocation does that have relative to maybe your VSATX with Vanguard, right? Your overall kind of stock market index fund. Just doing that simply is gonna make um, your financial advisors more comfortable and willing to invest with you, provide more avenues for people to make money, to do more with their capital, and ideally create more avenues for people to gain personal wealth. Um, and so that's what we're fundamentally trying to do. So through different partnerships, a lot of the different exchanges out there in the cryptocurrency space in the near term, and then long-term partnering with the uh, the actual uh, stock market exchanges once the appropriate regulations and um, you know compliance kind of structures have been put into place. We want to be the platform for financial and wealth management advisors to interact with their customers on both their traditional financial assets as well as the digital assets. Great. Um, you know, one of the things that we often hear about um, in crypto and blockchain is the adoption, right? Um, obviously, blockchain is still kind of undergoing PR maturity. Um, you know, how do you, especially in the wealth management space, you know, how do you see that adoption? You know, number one, you know, what are the steps you are taking within blockchain? So, you, you kind of are more approachable uh, to mainstream. What are some of what what are some of the things that you you know maybe that's as an advisor. What what would you say to other blockchain companies like like yours? So what's interesting is we actually did a lot of our own research and we hired a a, a marketing firm to perform perform some for us as well. So we reached out to over three thousand uh, different. Um, investment managers as well as people using investment management management services and we found that and this is across the united states just to be clear so not just a, a you know regional bias to the bay area where you'd probably see a larger proponent or component of people more interested in digital assets but we found that people were willing to invest in up to 10 percent of their total um uh you know assets under management to cryptocurrencies so bitcoin litecoin ethereum you name it um Flipping on the other side of the coin of the investment managers, they're saying upwards of 70 to 80% of their customers themselves are actually asking about how they can get more engaged in blockchain. So more on a kind of uh, information gathering, uh, you know, educational perspective, but with you know, intent to do something with that to ideally you know, say, hey, all right, this sounds great. Go buy me 10 Bitcoin. 
or whatever it may be. Uh, so th there, there's very real interest in the marketplace uh, across the United States right now. And we're trying to tap into that. Um, so on top of just that kind of uh, analysis we've done, you, you hit the nail on the head that there is a serious uh, roadblock to getting access um, to cryptocurrencies as a what, a what we would call a kind of traditional retail investor. Um, it's a much easier process than it used to be in 2012 when I first tried to buy my first piece of Bitcoin, uh, where you had to go get a money order and go meet a sketchy guy somewhere in a 7-Eleven kind of thing. Uh, it's now you can go directly to Coinbase, to Gemini, to Kraken, and you can just you know, put in your credit card information, link it to a bank account, and you can actually buy it now. So a lot of those logistical hurdles are going away. And as that happens, the need to then actually do something more intelligent with those assets, and not just kind of buy a Bitcoin and then see what happens, is what we predict to be the next kind of step and the maturity of that market. And that's what blockchain is also ultimately trying to do is kind of position ourselves as the de facto place to actually do that smart thing with your, your digital assets, whatever it may be. That's great. Um, you know, just in terms of years, is it months, years? When do you see this a more wider adoption? Like, I know I'm asking you to predict the future here, but if you were to give it a shot. Well, let me ask you, answer your question with another question. I mean, what's your definition of wider adoption? Well, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about in terms of crossing the chasm, right? Like we always talk about innovators, visionaries, and then it goes, goes to the mainstream. At the moment, blockchain is more seen more in the innovative space and not necessarily, you know, as the bell curve goes up, right? Um, so that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? I think it's going to really change depending on who you ask. If you talk to our CEO, uh, this, uh, this man by the name of Dan Iyer, uh, one of those just kind of brilliant types that, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, speaks far above my uh, far above my level of comprehension, but I know whatever he's talking about is fundamentally uh, correct and brilliant. He, you know, he kind of is one of those folks that I would say thinks that we're within a 10-year timeline of blockchain, you know, kind of crossing that chasm and being something that's not just a, let's just be honest, right now, it's a, it's a currency speculation, you know, vehicle right now for many, many people. Nobody's using cryptocurrency to pay for things on a regular transactional basis, other than in the very, very kind of niche, uh, abnormal situations like you've seen in Venezuela, Myanmar, where quite frankly, local faith and monetary and fiscal policies has been so eroded through uh, mismanagement and corruption that they'd rather have either American dollars, you know, the kind of global floating fiat currency, um, or something that is completely decentralized, untraceable, unmanageable, and un, um, kind of, uh, you know, the, the government can't claim it, right? There's a better term for that than cryptocurrency. So there's some very real need for that in, you know, developing countries and things of that nature. The Western, you know, uh, you know the cultures, United States, UK, the EU, et cetera, um, any place with, you know, very established, long-running fiscal and monetary policy and different mechanisms, structures, and systems, they're nowhere near that, right? And I don't think that that's going to go anytime soon, but I do think within a 10-year time frame, we will see a big adoption of some form of use of cryptocurrency to pay for daily transactional items because of what it brings to the table uh, in terms of decentralization, anonymity, security, um, and frankly, ownership and speed, right? The fact that you can just cash out your crypto and turn it into any fiat you want 
within minutes, not days, like when you do an ACH transfer with your bank, that matters, right? And you throw in the potential and uh, volatility of our market that's likely to happen in the next one to two years by most kind of economics, economics um, you know, uh, guest and estimation. I think there's gonna be an even bigger interest uh, to cryptocurrency because of that. It's gonna be a place to at the very minimum act as a safe harbor, store your cash, store your assets, see what happens. And then I think once people do that, it's gonna force them to get more intimate with what, it's, what it does and what it's capable of. And I think you're gonna start seeing a lot of interesting kind of um, you know, ripple effects, domino effects as a result of that. Great, uh, we're gonna take a short break. And when we come back, we're gonna ask Connor about some of his personal, you know, some personal impacts that technology has taken, you know, has what has occurred in his personal life through technology. So we're gonna come back in two minutes. I am interrupting this engaging conversation to tell you about ModeStack, a digital product agency that makes this podcast possible. Struggling with staff and not sure how to get ahead? Keep hearing about the cloud and how it can change your team? Have an application that you invested lots of money and haven't seen growth? These are the questions that our team has worked on answering for years. Learn more at themodestack.com. Let's get back to the show. All right, now we are back to Connor. Um, Connor, so you've, you know, you're an Iron Man, you've uh, Dog Whisperer, like all these different things. What are some of the, per, you know, some of these personal aspects to your life? What do you think that brings, what angle does it bring to some of the tech projects that you undertake? What are the things that you've learned from there that you that is applicable in this, in the tech space? I've been involved in some form of, I would call endurance sports for most of my life, whether I was uh, playing soccer, which, you know, at higher levels, you regularly run between six and eight miles a game, cross country, rugby um, for junior national teams. Again, you're running five, six miles every single game to actually doing triathlons like the Ironman, et cetera. Um, you learn the value of deferred gratification and how to have a goal that's off in the distance where you're not going to get that kind of immediate, you know, pump of adrenaline where, you know, you do something one day and all of a sudden you're like, great. And that gives you that kind of momentum to keep going. Uh, endurance sports are hard. Um, they're punishing. Frankly, they're not fun. And except for a very, very brief moment of time where after you finally complete your race, you, you feel good. Uh, but that's preceded by months, if not years worth of struggle, pain, and, uh, you know, <laughs> injury, frankly, uh, that kind of you have to go through to get there. And so I think that has trained me um, in the professional sense to, you know, figure out what your long-term goal is, work backwards to develop that kind of training plan, that kind of, you know, milestones that you have to hit along the way, right? Am I at the right pace? Is my heart rate uh, spiking in the right places? Am I recovering effectively? Is no different than did we achieve, achieve you know, sprint A and sprint B and sprint C. Uh, and in flight, being able to analyze, do a postmortem, figure out what you did wrong, what, what you did well, um, how to then change those things, alter your diet, right? Bring different uh, people into the, the, 
the the mix, um, whatever it is, that I think has a very, very applicable skill set to uh, long term strategic projects. And so I just think that uh, and I accidentally locked into that skill, which I just think is incredibly valuable from an operational perspective um, because of just those parallels there. That's great. Um, you know, how, what kind of impacts does it have on digital innovation? Like when you're, you're talking about endurance and, in, you know, how would you tie that with innovation perhaps? Sure, digital innovation, my all time least favorite phrase in the tech world, probably ever. Uh, <laughs> I, find, <laughs> I find that word to be so, or that phrase to be so meaningless I, I just can't even express the amount of disdain I have for it. Like, don't get me wrong. There is a need for quote unquote digital innovation in the world, right? My father's a doctor. He still receives and sends faxes every single day of his working life. That to me is just not acceptable when you're talking about literal life and death kind of things, right? These are handwritten notes that he is faxing, faxing, putting through a, a dedicated telephone landline to a hospital that then receives it, files it, and then hand records that information elsewhere. Like that should scare everybody. Now, I'm not saying that uh, this is happening in all parts of the healthcare world. And my dad's a bit older and you know, older people are more reluctant to adopt technology. That's that sounds very disruptive in my. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, that one is, but that's becoming abnormal, right? I think we've already started to buy into the fact that things like DocuSign are much better there. And those are being adopted by the, the global 50 in spades and has been happening for a while. DocuSign wouldn't be where they are today if that hadn't already started to happen 10 plus years ago. So I, I really do feel this whole concept of digital innovation, frankly, is a little bit tired and a little bit boring um, because it doesn't really apply to anybody who's actually working in the tech space these days. Digital innovation, tech, it's not a sector anymore, it's just work. If you're not involved with technology, if you're not leveraging technology, you're not digitizing things or working in a digital fashion, which frankly, if you have a computer and you have a web page, you probably already are, what's the point? So I just think it obfuscates the broader problems that we're trying to solve here is that there's a recording and there's a um, you know, auditability and an accountability problem in the healthcare industry between how doctors analyze information, share it, distribute it, and then use it to solve problems to help actually, you know, uh, cure a person's disease, mitigate a symptom, whatever it may be. That's the real issue. Using words like in phrases like digital innovation, just kind of get away from it and make people feel good about themselves. They can go up at a TED talk and talk about it and nothing ever gets done, but they get to pat themselves on the back and they get their 10,000 likes on LinkedIn and it never really happens. Right. Um, so, you know, what would be a more appropriate term for even the use case that you're talking about? You know, how would you articulate, you know, obviously it's not innovation. Would that, can we say transformation? Like again, these are buzzwords that are used in the industry. You know, um, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, what might be the type of initiatives that they you know, a business leader would undertake to change this? I'm old school in the way that I think, and I, I think it gets back to some of, you know, tech's uh, core competencies and what really made it great, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago is solve a problem, 
right? What Figure out what problem you're actually trying to solve for and make that the point. Tech is a tool. Digitization is a, is a, is a capability that can make whatever your solution is more scalable, more secure, and allow you to execute on it faster. It isn't in and of itself the answer. And I think that is fundamentally the problem. And there's no better example of how that's gone awry than the Iowa caucuses that happened on Monday this week. Somebody said we need an app to help with our polling. And so they built an app to do what? Nobody actually really has an answer. <laughs> They've looked into it. They looked at the shadow company, which is a ridiculous name for a company involved in politics. Uh, they'll leave that for another time. But they weren't solving a problem that was actually needed. The Iowa caucuses have a series of issues that are problematic there. And adding an app on top of it, adding that technological layer, does not actually solve anything other than maybe it helped accelerate the speed at which it crashed and burned, which if you're not a believer in how the Iowa caucuses are run, maybe that's a good thing, but it's a great example of how tech and digital innovation and transformation isn't actually the solution. It's a way to solve problems. So figure out the problem, look at the people, look at the users, mm -hmm. look at the process, understand what you're trying to solve for, and then back into your problem and then find a way that I think will become very apparent for tech to then amplify uh, your solution and help you execute on a bigger, bolder, faster, more accurate and accountable way. You know, you're talking about politics and th this is great. And, you know, Sh a company that's called Shadow doing an app, that, that just sounds very shady to me, right? Um, so you're, you're um, also involved in a couple of nonprofits. Talk to us about that, Concourse being one of them. Um, you know, tell us what you do for them. Sure. So I think very much in line with how is technology helping, you know, helping solve a problem. College Match and um, uh, Concourse Education are two companies in the kind of education space. Sorry, organizations. Let me be very clear. They're uh, one's for, one's not for profit. The other one is for profit. Uh, but the, the, these two organizations are effectively trying to fix the problems that are uh, facing many let's call them young adults in that kind of like 17, 18, 19, even 20 year old kind of time frame. Uh, in some cases older too, you know, people who maybe went off on like a, a Mormon mission or went to uh, join the military, they came back and they're a freshman at the age of 24, 25. Uh, but predominantly people at that kind of college year, um, you know, time frame in their life. And there is an enormous amount of data about how our current education system from a primary care uh, perspective and that we don't prepare students for college as well as from a secondary sorry post-secondary education system perspective that once people are there we actually aren't teaching them anything that's valuable to um, uh, to you know find a job be successful have a life and uh, you know as an adult in the working world and I want to be very clear that this isn't a classic uh, rant about the values and the virtues of STEM education over the you know the classic you know theater degree that's not what we're talking about here because I'm a firm believer as a person who had got their undergrad in public policy, uh, you know, a pretty fluffy degree in a lot of ways. Um, it still has value. It teaches you how to think, it teaches you how to analyze and teaches you how to kind of, um, I think differently than folks with a STEM background. And when you bring those kind of uh, diverse opinions and viewpoints into a room together, you get a, a, an appropriate kind of professional to uh, professional tension that drives really interesting concepts and ideas and, and ultimately some type of innovation. Um, so what they're ultimately trying to do is how can we leverage a technology platform to get more information into the hands of people when they need it 
uh, and the format they need it in order to uh, further their education, get accreditation, um, and then have that kind of stamp of approval that I got, at, you know, I graduated my undergraduate degree uh, without having to force people into the existing paradigm of you need to spend hours in a seat in an auditorium listening, turning in papers, taking tests, and then getting feedback from your, uh, your teacher. It's worked for a long time, but the way that people learn, the way that the world is moving, uh, the rate at which is happening is too fast for traditional institutions to keep up with. And both through College Match and through Concourse Education, uh, we believe that we're helping uh, give people more access to more information and the kind of the format and the timing and the cadence at which they want and need it in order to actually progress their careers, open up more opportunities, get the job that they've always wanted, and then ultimately provide for themselves, their families, their loved ones, whatever it may be. And Connor, tell us about events, podcasts, speaking engagements that you are excited to share with our listeners, you know, upcoming events and things like that. Sure. Yeah, there's probably two main ones that are top of mind for me right now. Uh, the first is a uh, conference called Elevate. It's being held out in New York City in about, I think, two, three weeks. And it's around uh, what we were talking about the blockchain kind of initiative to uh, bring digital assets to uh, kind of traditional financial investment um, you know, institutions. And so uh, Dan Ayer, our CEO, is going to be out there on a couple panels talking with different people, trying to uh, make the case for why digital assets need to be part of your uh, kind of modern portfolio, uh, that, you know, portfolio management solution for your clients. And then, of course, I would be totally remiss if I didn't plug Anaplan's uh, user conference CPX in June of this year down in San Diego. Uh, that is, uh, you know, a big 2,000 person plus conference that we host every year uh, around, you know, all ops, operational minded uh, kind of, you know, issues, planning, budgeting, forecasting across different lines of business, you name it. Um, it's usually a good time. Uh, we put a lot of work and effort into it uh, and would uh, love to have anyone who's either a customer or a prospect uh, come and check it out. Great. Um, so um, to wrap up, is there anything that I've not asked you that you want to share with our listeners? I don't think so. I just want to thank you for having me on the, the podcast. It's uh, exciting to be um, part of something that's new and growing, which is pretty cool. And it's been uh, fun talking with you. And I hope uh, this has been as uh, interesting for you as it has been for me. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Connor, for your time. And uh, we wish you the best with Blockchain and Anaplan and uh, some of the nonprofit initiatives. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you are fired up by what you heard today, please share with a friend who will find this useful. As always, subscribe, rate, and review. And remember that innovation happens when you get in the mode.